Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One of the reasons I argued that she's so dangerous is that Cuba has a long track record of passing or selling classified information to Russia and other U.S. adversaries. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Ana Montes was the most damaging female spy in US history. For nearly 17 years, Montes was one of the US government's top Cuba experts with easy access to classified documents. By night, she was working for Fidel Castro's Cuba, listening to coded messages over shortwave radio, passing US secrets to handlers in local restaurants and slipping into Havana wearing a wig. Her only sister, Lucy, was working for the FBI helping to flush Cuban spies out of the United States. Little did Lucy or her family know that the greatest Cuban spy of all was sitting right next to them at Thanksgivings, baptisms and weddings. I speak with investigative journalist Jim Popkin, whose book Codename Blue Wren weaves the tale of two sisters who chose two very different paths. A woman labelled as one of the most damaging spies in US history by America's top counterintelligence official. After more than two decades in a federal prison, Montez was released in January 2023. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the first-hand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Jim Popkin to our Cold War Conversation. So Ana Montez is an American woman. She was born on an army base, U.S. Army base in West Germany. Uh, her father at the time was a doctor in the army. And they moved when Ana was very young to Topeka, Kansas, in the you know center of the country. 
uh, lived there for several years, and then on to the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. And that's really where Anna grew up. She went to uh, college at the University of Virginia, um, had a very important year, her junior year abroad in Madrid, where she met a number of anti-American, in some cases, radicals, um, committed leftists, with some some cases, some serious radicals, and then was uh, further kind of indoctrinated and dragged into uh, the spy world in graduate school in Washington, D.C. at the Johns Hopkins um, School for International Studies called SAIS, S-A-I-S. I don't want to get too far ahead here, Ian, but what's fascinating is that this is a patriotic family with a father in the army. Dr. Alberto Montes ultimately retired as a colonel. And coincidentally, four of Anna's relatives ended up working for the FBI, which of course is the main law enforcement entity in the US, which uh, tries to identify and arrest spies. These included her sister, Lucy, who was a translator for the FBI in Miami, and her brother, Tito, who was a special agent with the FBI in Atlanta. So I think of this as a you know really interesting patriotic family originally from Puerto Rico. And Anna got involved, got involved with spying um, and was sadly on her way. It's an interesting background because the father is a domineering character and there's quite a lot of abuse from him in the family as well, which re- results in uh, him leaving the household. Dr. Alberto Montes, I said, born in Puerto Rico, brilliant man, uh, went to college in Puerto Rico and then gets into an American uh, medical school in Albany, New York. And at first he works for the army as a doctor. He gets training in psychiatry, becomes a Freudian psychiatrist um, in, in private practice, leaves, uh, leaves the military. And despite being trained in the works uh, of Freud, he ended up being very abusive to his family. His kids um, report being beaten starting at the age of five for normal childhood um, indiscretions, let's say, you know, spilled milk, that kind of thing. Anything could trigger him. And he had a very conflictful relationship with Anna as the oldest child. He he was abusive to his first wife, uh, then got divorced. And I, as part of the book research, I met some members of his second family, including uh, his stepdaughter, Michelle Manthe. And Michelle t- told me this frightening story of how he beat her and her brother when they were young, and they lived in, in fear of him, and then how he uh, broke the arm of their mother. And it was, a, it was a crime, essentially, that was covered up by the family and never reported. So pretty unusual to have um, someone who was trained in, in Freudian, the Freudian approach and, and understood the importance of uh, a safe, secure childhood on one's psychology to have him behind closed doors be so abusive. Um, quick anecdote regarding Anna. When she was young, she was allergic 
to all kinds of stuff and had uh, childhood asthma. And her sister, Lucy, told me how once Dr. Montez decided and when Anna was having an asthma attack, that he would try to heal her, if you will, using therapy. And this poor girl was gasping for breath. And they sat in chairs across from each other. And Dr. Montez tried to basically talk her out of her asthma attack as she was struggling to breathe. And that just, you know, said to me, what there was a weird power dynamic between them. They had a very tough relationship. And after Anna's arrest, the CIA did behavioral work on her and interviewed her extensively. And they concluded that Anna was in part, her motivation in part, not in full, was to seek revenge against her father, you know, who wore a uniform when he was when she was younger and clearly was you know associated with the US military. She later goes to work for the military but secretly is engaged in working for Cuba the entire time. I didn't know that much about Puerto Rico and its relationship with the US. So I mean I found it really interesting that you know you could be drafted in Puerto Rico yet you can't vote for a US president. Um, and I think there's other anomalies there. And I think that that's another area of interest for Anna is Puerto Rican independence. And there's a sort of schism within the family as to how they uh, how they look at that. Yeah, that's that's right, Ian. Um, Anna, as as a leftist, I, I hate even using labels on this because I'm 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 not sure how one would define her her politics, but. She became opposed to U.S. policy involving both Puerto Rico and, of course, Cuba as well. And she took the I would you know, I would say this is a, a fringe view in Puerto Rico, but she took the view that Puerto Rico should be completely independent of the U.S. There's been polling over the years. And, and you know, this is discussed frequently in Puerto Rico, but it is not a mainstream belief that Puerto Rico should be uh, completely independent. But that was her point of view. And as you said, within the family, there's a a broad range um, of views. Her her father um, thought that Puerto Rico should have more independence, but not be completely independent. Uh, There there was a a famous cousin of Ana Montes, who was a, um, a writer and a fiery political activist uh, and arrested many times by U.S. authorities and spent a lot of time in prison. And he also wanted independence for Puerto Rico. But within the Montez family, there was a wide range of, of views on that point. You mentioned earlier her study year in Spain, and that, that's where she meets Ricardo, this this Argentine who is basically in exile to avoid being arrested under the uh, the military junta in Argentina at that time. Yeah, that's right. She meets Ricardo on a train um, in Spain. He was living at the time with uh, a married couple and their children. They had all come from Argentina to escape the repression there. I worked with an investigative reporter in Argentina to look into Ricardo and and his his friends. 
I was never able to establish that they were arrested or even members of some of the well-known communist political parties at the time. But he clearly was very radical. Um, I interview a mutual friend of Anna's, a, a woman uh, who was also spending her junior year abroad named Mimi Cologne. And Mimi describes this atmosphere, and she spent a lot of time with Ricardo and Anna uh, in, in Ricardo's apartment. This atmosphere uh, at that moment in the late 70s in Madrid, where there was uh, a lot of anti-American fervor, there were protests in the street, and Anna got caught up in this. And Mimi said that she struggled because Mimi was uh, born in Puerto Rico. Anna wasn't, as I said, she's born on a, on a U.S. Army base and then raised in Kansas, of all that's about as American as you can get, uh, and then in Baltimore. So she identified much more as an American as opposed to you know a Puerto Rican as in, in terms of being born in Puerto Rico. And she also had limited Spanish skills back then. Uh, later, she became you know completely fluent. But at, at that point, as a college student, um, her Spanish skills were very limited. And Mimi describes how Anna struggled with her identity. She didn't know if she wanted to be quote, an American. I'm not, I'm not saying that Puerto Ricans are not Americans. I'm just making the distinction of, of where you're born. And she struggled with, uh, with that identity when she was surrounded, uh, particularly with foreigners who were so critical of U.S. foreign policy. That was a really formative time for her. She stayed in touch with Ricardo really for the rest of, of her life. And he was he and his and his friend named Eduardo were very important um, people to her. Um, I've re read some of her letters about them and what they they meant. Um, so even though she was young and just a junior in college, that experience stayed with her. So I think when when she returns from Europe, she goes and lives in uh, Puerto Rico for a while, but becomes quite disil disillusioned relatively quickly and, and gets a job in Washington. Yes. She lived in Puerto Rico for a little while with family. Um, she, she, Mimi, her friend says that she quickly learned, you know, people are just, people are people everywhere and they're just kind of struggling to survive. She didn't find this uh, vibrant, booming community of, of folks who were opposed to U.S. policy there. And she was only there for a couple months. She gets in, essentially invited to apply for a job with the Department of Justice in Washington. And that was appealing to her because her mother, Amelia, was nearby in Baltimore. That's, you know, it's about 45 minutes uh, away. So she takes this job. It's a low level job in the Freedom of Information Act office for the Department of Justice. It's a little bit of a backwater, but she does very well and she gets a security clearance uh, at that point because she has to have access to a lot of classified documents. And, and just for your listeners who may not be familiar with the Freedom of Information Act, that is a post-Watergate policy that's put in place across the federal government that gives reporters and the public access to government documents, essentially. But there are all kinds of carve-outs and exceptions for classified information or sensitive or personal information. So her job was to review these documents and decide which ones could be released to the public. But the key thing is that she got a security clearance at that time, 
And that became very important later when she was introduced to, to the Cubans and they wanted to recruit her. What sort of vetting would have gone on for that security clearance? Because I would have thought they, if they dug into the, the uh, Madrid experience, they, they would have been somewhat alarmed by that. The FBI is responsible for doing the background checks, and um, they missed, as far as I know, I've not seen it, but as far as I know, they missed the, uh, the connection uh, what happened in Madrid and kind of who she became as as a person uh, there. They did come up with one intriguing uh, statement, though. One of her colleagues at the Department of Justice, this is after she had already worked there for a while, reported to the FBI as part of a background check that this employee thought that Anna was disloyal to the U.S. And Despite that, Anna was allowed to enter the, it's called the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, after she was with the Department of Justice. And she really was never properly vetted for, for that statement from someone who found her to be disloyal. The DIA was aware of it, uh, but in retrospect, obviously, that should have been a much bigger red flag. Because at this point, she is opposed to Reagan's policy, particularly in Nicaragua, but also uh, the policy towards Cuba as well. And is she voicing that relatively openly as well at this point? Well, so just to continue with the chronology, she's at the Department of Justice in this, as I said, this this office, um, reviewing documents. She's getting kind of bored and she applies to graduate school at the Johns Hopkins graduate school for international affairs called SAIS, S-A-I-S. And at SAIS, um, you're right now, it's, it's now the Reagan administration. President Reagan is very aggressive in Central America and particularly in Nicaragua and El Salvador. And, you know, his, his view at the time was that the communists were trying to take over and kind of spread throughout Central America. And he was, doing his best to oppose them at every turn. Anna and many other students at SAIS in particular were upset with Reagan's meddling, uh, what they saw as Reagan's meddling in um, you know, these countries and their, their affairs. And so Anna became outspoken at SAIS. But I would say that was a pretty common uh, position for a liberal student at that time, particularly in, in a U.S. graduate school. But it was useful for the Cubans because it identified her politics early on. And um, that's what led to their approach to her. And this is the approach from Marta Velazquez. Yes. So Marta Velazquez is another graduate student at SAIS. Fascinating woman, born in Puerto Rico, highly educated. She went to Princeton University as an undergrad then Georgetown Law School, and then she goes to SAIS, where Anna is, for her graduate studies uh, in international relations. And at that time, Marta had already been approached by the Cubans. And what happened was she wrote her senior thesis on Cuba and traveled to Cuba uh, as a, I think it was a, you know, a, as a senior at Princeton University. 
So she was already on the radar of the Cubans as a as a young woman. Now, this is several years later, even after law school, and she's at SICE. And we know from an indictment of Marta, which uh, the Justice Department released about 10 years ago, that she had already been recruited by the Cubans at that point at SICE. Along comes Ana Montes, who is of Puerto Rican lineage, um, like Marta, and is very outspoken about Reagan's policies in Central America. They become best of friends. And I can't say to this day whether that was a ruse or whether they just really enjoyed each other's company. But what the upshot was that Marta um, introduced the idea to Ana of helping the Cubans by helping with Nicaragua and uh, you know, helping to defeat essentially you know, the, the Reagan policy there. And she convinced, I don't know how much convincing she had to do, but um, together they went to New York City and had a meeting with a Cuban intelligence officer. This is in late 1984. And both women had just graduated from SICE. And at that meeting, Anna agrees to spy for the Cubans. So she's about 27 years old when she makes this fateful decision. I think pretty soon after then, they make a clandestine trip to uh, Cuba. They do. Uh, This is a remarkable part of this. So bear in mind, Ana Montes is employed by the U.S. Department of Justice. She is not authorized to go to Cuba at, at this time. She takes a secret trip with her friend, and we later learn a Cuban agent herself, Marta Velazquez, and they take a secret trip to Cuba, but they do it in a very circuitous fashion. They fly first to Madrid. In Madrid, they're met by a Cuban handler, a a, go-between. They're given new fake passports. Then they fly to Prague. In Prague, they get new clothes and a chaperone. And then they all fly together to Cuba. And the two young women get spy 101 training at that point. Uh, They learn how to see if someone is following them, how to communicate um, back and forth to Havana. And Anna insists that she learn how to defeat a polygraph because she knows she's about to go back home and she's probably going to have to take a polygraph to get into some of these uh, U.S. intelligence agencies. So she does. She gets training by the Cubans in how to beat a lie detector, uh, which ultimately she she's su- successful at. Also on the trip to Cuba, Anna meets um, a young man, a Cuban, who she falls for, and he takes her all over the island, including to U.S. military installations. And she makes quite an error early on because she comes back from this trip and she sees her friend Mimi, who I mentioned a few minutes ago. Mimi is the one who was in Madrid with her uh, on her junior year abroad. They've stayed friendly. And she tells Mimi that she's met a guy in Cuba, really cute. And he took her all over the island. I even got to see military bases. And 
sometime shortly after that, Anna realized she had made a major error. Mimi suddenly becomes a very dangerous person to her. Mimi knows, A, Anna's been to Cuba. And again, she's at the Justice Department. She was not supposed to go to Cuba. Mimi knows, B, she met someone who uh, took her to military installations. So presumably, this is someone who is affiliated with the government um, in, you know, and maybe in the military himself. And three, Mimi is the link back to Spain and Ricardo and this anti-American sentiment and worldview that Anna embraced at the time. So she's a dangerous player all of a sudden. And Anna does the only thing she can think of. She cuts Mimi out of her life. She stops talking to Mimi. She won't return any phone calls or letters, no explanation. And Mimi lives with this for years. She's one of her closest friends. She assumes she's done something um, wrong to Anna. And it's not until her arrest that Mimi realizes what had happened and why her friend cut her off so dramatically. Wow. Wow. Do we get any insight into what Anna made of Cuba on that visit, what she saw and what she felt about the the country? The only thing that I picked up was that she remarked on how poor the people were, you know, which which is interesting. You you'd think that maybe given that uh belief it, it may may have made her question her fervor for uh, the revolution and for the Castro regime, but but it didn't. And she intellectualized it uh, somehow. Um, and then obviously we know about her, li- the little affair that she had there. She met a lot of professors. She was um, given a number of lectures while she was there. She was kind of wined and dined and romanced by the Cubans. And the only negative bit that came back was that she was really struck by the, the, the abject poverty in Cuba. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When she returns, how how does her career move forward? When she returns from Cuba, uh, her friend Marta Velazquez, on behalf of the Cubans, helps her to apply for a number of government jobs. One of the jobs that she applies for is the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And DIA is the intelligence arm of the military. Really important um, function. The agency today has about 16,000 employees around the world. And they're war planners and and think of it like a, a CIA for the U.S. military. And so it's a very important place to, to work and would be very helpful to the Cubans. So using Marta's uh, typewriter and with her help and, and using her also as a, uh, a reference, she applies and is accepted by the DIA in 1985. And no major security checks on her at that point or polygraph? There was no polygraph. DIA did not 
polygraph for entry at that time. They, they now do, but th that was typical. Many agencies uh, was not true of the CIA and NSA in 1985, but unfortunately the DIA didn't use the polygraph. However, it may not have mattered anyhow. She later, years later, was given a polygraph uh, by the DIA and she passed. So she she learned a way to defeat the polygraph. And many people are skeptical of the utility of polygraphs anyhow. Now, once she's in at the DIA, she has quite a unique way of getting information out. She's not stealing documents like you would expect most spies to do. Right. She was a very careful, disciplined and diligent spy. She wasn't perfect at all. She she there, there were a couple of serious lapses, like telling her girlfriend Mimi uh, about her trip to Cuba. But she realized early on that one way to protect herself was to memorize classified information instead of grabbing documents. You know, the, the two famous uh, recent spies in U.S. history are Robert Hansen at uh, the FBI, who is a spy for Russia, and Rick Ames at CIA, also a Russian spy. And both of them took and passed along classified documents. Anna almost never did that. She had a, a good memory and she made it better through study. Um, I, I was able to go through her books on her bookshelf at her sister's home, again, obviously post-arrest, and I found a book on improving your memory. And in it, I saw her all the lines that were that were underlined. She clearly had studied it to improve her memory and use mnemonics and that kind of thing. And so Ana Montes had two jobs once she began at DIA. She was a legit analyst uh, during the day, which meant she was a writer, essentially, for the U.S. military on first Nicaragua, then El Salvador, and then Cuba. So she had legitimate access to classified information from not just DIA, but from many intelligence agencies, including the CIA. She would scoop up all this uh, information. That's what she was supposed to do in her legit job. And then at night, her night job would begin. She would go to her apartment in Washington, D.C., in the Cleveland Park section of uh, Northwest Washington. And she would type out what she had memorized from that day and put it into her Toshiba laptop, which had encryption in it. And so for day after day, for nearly 17 years, she's passing along, gathering up, analyzing and passing along U.S. secrets to Cuba. And one of the reasons I argue that she's so dangerous is that it doesn't end in Cuba. Cuba has a long track record of passing or selling classified information to Russia and other U.S. adversaries. So by providing it to Cuba didn't mean that that was the end of the stream. It likely also went to Russia and, and other U.S. enemies. It's an incredible feat. I mean, I, I can't remember what I've come downstairs to get, let alone <laughs> a document <laughs> like that. I, I just beggars belief how you can memorize that sort of stuff but i think the other thing that was valuable for for the cubans was that because she was an analyst she knew what was going to be useful information to them rather than just provide everything 
That is a great point. And, you know, she really was an analyst on both sides of the fence. She was a, a superior analyst for the U.S. She got promoted. She got cash awards. Um, and she was highly prized within the DIA and the U.S. intelligence community for her analytical skills. But she also provided that same service for Cuba because, you know, she wasn't just it wasn't just a data dump. Here's everything I learned. She was reading um, every day different information and passing along what she thought would be helpful to the Cubans, her friends. And so she played a really valuable role. She also was dangerous because within the U.S., she wrote documents that kind of set the framework for how the U.S. government thought of Cuba. So, for, for example, in 1998, she worked on a countrywide assessment of Cuba for the Secretary of Defense, and he deli ultimately delivered this document to Congress. And the upshot of it was that Cuba was no longer a military or intelligence threat to the United States. This is under President Clinton. That's a laughable statement um, on the intelligence side, particularly, <laughs> and, and especially because Castro's greatest spy was the lead author on that document, yeah. stating that Cuba, Cuba's intelligence service didn't pose a threat anymore to the U.S. So that's, for me, further evidence for why she was so dangerous. Um, if you look at Hansen and Ames, People were killed as a result of their treachery. I would never um, you know, discount that in any way. That never happened with Anna, by the way. No one was killed or even arrested, as far as we know, of the people that she revealed. And she revealed at least the names, the true names of at least four uh, people, presumably CIA spies working in Cuba. But my point is, she was dangerous because of her analytical skills and because she um, held a basically a policy role, conducted a policy role in the U.S., unlike Hansen or Ames, who, who never operated that high level. Ana Montes even once briefed the president of Nicaragua, Violeta Chamorro, after she was uh, elected president there, and, uh, and then obviously passed along everything that she heard to her friends, the Cubans, and put all that together. And that, that's why I argue she was as dangerous as she was. How was she passing this information to her handlers? How was she communicating back to Cuba and also receiving messages from Cuba? Well, for your listeners at uh, Cold War Conversations, this, this is probably familiar turf, but it's it's really, it's great stuff. To get the, the, um, the messages, um, it was from numbers stations broadcasts. Um, and for folks who are not familiar with that, in this case, it meant there was a woman uh, typically in Havana, in a, in a sound booth or radio booth uh, in Havana. And she would say, attention, 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 and then read a series of 150 uh, numbers, digits in Spanish, of course, in a row and then, and then repeat it on a loop. Anna would sit in her apartment uh, in D.C., tune in on a shortwave radio, a Sony shortwave radio that she had purchased. And she knew the frequency and the time 
from the Cubans when this broadcast would happen. But anyone who had a shortwave radio could have stumbled on this. And she'd write down those 150 digits and type them into her Toshiba. And uh, uh, she had the code in there. So out would pop her messages for the week, her instructions rather for the week. And she would do that two or three times um, a week. We have an episode on the subject of number stations, which is our episode 239. There will be a link in the episode notes. And so that's how she heard from the field, essentially, from Havana. Here's, you know, we're interested in this, we're interested in that. Then for her, how how does she get the information out? As I said, she would type up her notes in her computer, in her laptop. It's encrypted. And then she'd put it on a floppy disk. And every few weeks, and this was risky, she would meet in Washington at restaurants with her Cuban handler and uh, discreetly pass the handler this floppy disk. As I said, that was risky because it's an in-person meeting. But she insisted early on that her handlers be non NOX, N-O-C, non-official cover. They're not out of an embassy. They can't be tracked to an embassy. It could be a, a lawyer, a, a deli owner, someone who either is Cuban or has an affinity for Cuba, but can't easily be tracked to the embassy or the government. And this person would meet with her. They'd talk. She'd share her, her feelings and frustrations with her handler. And she'd pass this floppy disk, and then the handler would get it on to the intelligence service in Cuba from there. So these handlers were effectively illegals based in the right. in in the US. Okay. So as as you said, I mean she's moving up the ranks, she's getting awards of distinction and at the same time that Anna is moving into the uh, the DIA, her sister is uh, joining the FBI and her brother is also joining the FBI. This is one of the crazy, crazy aspects of this story that um, I didn't I didn't understand and appreciate until I wrote the book. And bear in mind, I've been gathering string on this story for about 15 years, and I wrote about it for The Washington Post about 10 years ago. So I thought I knew you know a lot about this case. But what I learned was in terms of the timing, right before Anna takes that first illegal trip to Cuba, Lucy is living with her father in the Baltimore area, gets into a fight with him and thinks, I need, to, I need a better job and I, I need to possibly move too. At the time, she was selling ladies' blouses at a department store in Baltimore. She looks in the paper, she sees some jobs for translators and her Spanish was pretty good. And one of the jobs was with the FBI. So within a week, or two of Anna deciding to spy for Cuba and planning for her first um, secretive trip to Cuba, sister Lucy, her younger sister, calls Anna and says, great news, I got a new job. I'm not selling ladies' blouses. I'm going to work for the FBI in Miami. Long pause on the phone. Anna is very unhappy, tries to talk her out of it, says the FBI, they're, they're a bunch of jerks. I know some of these guys. It's not a great idea. And it must have been a nightmare for Anna. 
not only was her sister going to work for the FBI, the chief law enforcement agency in the country, but she's working for the FBI in Miami, the hotbed of Cuban spying and where the FBI focuses a lot of its efforts and energy on catching Cuban spies. So this confluence and you know odd uh, timing was just a complete nightmare for Anna. Later, Lucy marries an FBI employee in Miami. And then one day she has the idea that her sister-in-law would make for a great FBI agent. She calls her sister-in-law, Joan, who's in Pennsylvania at the time, and says, you should be an FBI agent. They're looking for diversity. And Joan was a Korean American. Uh, You'd be great. Joan says, oh, that sounds wonderful. I'd love it. She goes and tells her husband, Tito. Tito is Anna and Lucy's brother. Tito at the time was practicing to be a priest. He's in seminary. He hears about this and he said, oh my goodness, I don't want to be a priest. I want to be an FBI agent. And both of them apply and are accepted to be FBI special agents, as in they can arrest, they carry guns and badges. And so within a matter of years, Anna has four close family members who are in the FBI, totally coincidental. And by the way, they're loyal, patriotic Americans. They had no idea what Anna was up to. And the FBI is the U.S.'s internal counterintelligence arm. That's right. Correct. So they're focusing on Cuban agents and, well, any form of uh, foreign agent activity in in the U.S. And being based in Miami, they're naturally going to be focused on Cuban uh, counterintelligence. That's exactly right. Wow. Does Cuba's position change at all with the collapse of the Soviet Union? Because they no longer have the support of the big brother over the over the ocean. So uh, does that change Cuba's stance somewhat? Well, it does financially, certainly. Russia provided all this support to Cuba. And after the, the, quote, end of the Cold War, although I think it's still going on, that money was pulled back. So that was a very difficult period for the Cubans. But in terms of their intelligence operation, they kept very close connections with the the Russians, uh, and they were trained by the Soviets. They have a great intelligence service. Um, they're often underappreciated. But Anamanta is the best example of this. I mean, think about it from their point of view. They find a young woman in an American graduate school. Uh, they subtly and deftly rec- recruit her. They don't really come on heavy and say, you're going to help Cuba. They say, you're going to help Nicaragua. Um, right away, where there's basically a proxy war going on between Cuba and the U.S. and others. And they put her in place. They help her get into the DIA, the American military. And then they sit back and wait as she brilliantly marches up the ladder, you know, incredibly successful at her day job. Um, And it goes on for nearly 17 years. So they do a a very skilled, scrappy intelligence service. And how, how is Anna viewed by her fellow workers? She is viewed as a prickly, difficult person. Um, she's someone who might walk past you in a hallway 
and never say hello, not even see you. Uh, she's someone who may chew off your head at a meeting if she feels that you're not prepared or your your perspective varies from hers. Um, she was called behind her back derisively the Queen of Cuba. That spoke to her mastery of all things Cuba, but also also her kind of imperial manner. Um, people who worked close closely with her would say, I I didn't know really anything about her personal life. Um, she she never went to any personal functions that, you know, she wouldn't do drinks after work. Uh, she wouldn't go to birthday parties. Uh, her closest co-workers knew very little about her personal life or her family or anything like that. So um, she was diffi- a very difficult personality. It was easy to find a lot of uh, folks across many U.S. agencies who didn't care for her at all. Yeah, because I think her family also saw changes in her behavior. She seemed much more distant from them. She changed dramatically when her spy career began. I mean, she she had always been um, a kind of keep to yourself person, but she became sullen and then ultimately uh, clinically depressed uh, as she spied. And, th- and that's an interesting aspect of this that gets lost, especially in Hollywood takes. Spying is lonely and it's difficult. You're lying to everyone in your life. And if you have a conscience, uh, that can weigh on you. And it certainly did with Anna. Lucy and she were very close as young girls. And then as Anna became a teenager and older, they kind of drifted uh, a little bit. But you know, they're, they're the only two girls, they're four Montez children, uh, two girls, two boys. And so they're very close in age and they had been very close. Anna joins DIA and Lucy has almost nothing to talk to her about. She tries, but Anna won't reveal anything at all about what's going on at work or her personal life. It's odd. At one point, Lucy has a 40th birthday party in South Florida and invites Anna. Anna sits there like a lump, um, just, you know, without any expression or affect, won't talk to Lucy's friends. It's really weird. And all her friends comment and say, what's wrong with Anna? And what was wrong was she had this secret that was eating her up and she had very few people to share it with. There were moments when her handlers just disappeared they got nervous uh, about the security situation and they just wouldn't show up. And those were her closest friends. Those were the people that Anna was, you know, most easily able to share her, you know, her true feelings with. And when they would go away, it really became isolating for her. She ultimately started seeing um, a psychiatrist, um, uh, taking medication for her depression And then much later, right before her arrest, she was showering, um, you know, sometimes for uh, an hour at a time. She was restricting her diet. She would only eat unseasoned boiled potatoes. She had some OCD affectations, and it really wore very heavily on her as the years went on. Has anybody got any suspicions about her? There were very few suspicions about her 
early on. Uh, there was one employee who really didn't like her and thought that she went to meetings that she didn't need to be at, stuck her nose in other people's business. And he complained at one point to a DIA uh, security investigator, um, someone named Scott Carmichael, who was a, this is the unofficial title, but a mole hunter. He's looking for moles and spies within um, the Pentagon. And he complained about a number of, of Anna's uh, behaviors to Scott. And Scott kind of reluctantly looked into it, waited months, and then called Anna in for an interview. Uh, this is in 1996. So, you know, she started in 85. So she's been there for a decade and she's one of the top analysts um, at DIA. So Scott very gingerly went in to talk to her. And Anna, at this kind of now famous early meeting, was blowing Scott off. She thought it was, this was like a, just another darn security review. And this, who was this guy? And Scott at the time kind of looked like a, a schlump. Um, he described himself as like Chris Farley, a little overweight and stuffed into his clothes. He didn't give the appearance of a very sharp, smart investigator, which he is. And so she kind of discounted him and wouldn't really um, listen to him very much. And in desperation, Scott says to her just to get her attention, look, Anna, I'm not here for a routine security investigation. In fact, I'm concerned that you are part of a Cuban espionage ring, essentially. He doesn't come right out and say that she's a spy, but he says that she might be um, being manipulated uh, as part of a, uh, an operation. And that tactic, and by the way, he had no reason to believe that. It was a bluff. But that tactic worked. Anna shut up, sat down, uh, made sure she was available, stopped talking about all the other things she had to do that day. And Scott went through an interview with her and asked about a number of the points that this one suspicious employee had raised. Scott ended the interview and, and basically closed the case on Ana Montes in 96. But after the fact, he realized that what he had missed was that she never objected. He essentially said, I think you're a Cuban spy or being manipulated by the Cubans. She never stopped him and said, what? That's outrageous. How dare you accuse me of that? You're crazy. She just went along with it. And it wasn't until years later, and Scott was intimately involved with how Anna was arrested, that he realized he missed that. It was the dog that didn't bark. If uh, you remember that from uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, it was the absence of her uh, reaction that should have been a clue to him. And he acknowledges that he missed that. Around about the time of that interview, I understand that the, the FBI was having some success in their Cuban counterintelligence operations and managed to roll up a, a network in Miami that gives them access to some code breaking technology. Yeah, it's a, f a fascinating little detour in this story, but it's actually connected. In approximately 95, 96, right around the time that Scott is doing um, his interview with Anna, um, the FBI gets evidence that 
there may be Cuban spies operating in Miami, in the Miami area in Southern Florida, and they start an investigation. And it turns out it's called the WASP network, as in W-A-S-P. And it's a very big network directed by the Cuban intelligence service to try to make um, entree into military bases in Southern Florida. And there are a lot of important uh, military installations. And there were a number of uh, operatives, uh, Cuban operatives there, kind of some of them are kind of knuckleheads, but uh, they, you know, they had resources and they were attempting uh, to infiltrate these military installations. So the FBI gains this evidence. They start to work the case. And by September of 1998, so two years after. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, Scott Carmichael interviews Anna. They make um, a lot of arrests and there ultimately are convictions. But what is important, two, two interesting things about this. Number one is during the searches, they find the crypto keys, the, the code-breaking tools for how Havana is communicating by shortwave radio with their operatives in the field. And that becomes very important um, in a moment. I'll, I can explain that. The second point of this is Lucy Montez. She's working for the FBI as a translator. Since she's in Miami, she's mostly working drug cases and, and other, uh, other crimes, so a lot of drug cases. But she gets assigned to the WASP case so she's part of a unit of with, you know, teamed with FBI agents that are working on this Cuban spy matter. And she, she gets an award for it. It's really the proudest moment of her career. And the irony is, again, she had no idea her sister was a spy. The irony is these arrests in, in the Miami area put immense pressure on Anna back in Washington. The Cubans realized after the arrests, everyone's got to go dark. All of our uh, illegal um, agents in the field, our spies, everyone, we're going dark because it's dangerous right now. They don't know what information is out there. What does the FBI know about them? So Lucy's working on the WASP case as part of this team and arrests are made and it puts a lot of pressure on Anna. Back in D.C., this is when her depression starts because her um, her handler just disappears. Um, in fact, she doesn't see her handler again in, in a restaurant or in, in the U.S. again. All the meets after this are in the Caribbean or in Cuba. 
Um, so it, it exacerbated her loneliness um, and, and her problems because her, as I had mentioned, her handlers really became her, her closest friends. The FBI gains access to the codes, right? And again, if, if you're listening to 150 digits uh, just being read, it's going to be very, very difficult to figure out what, what that means. You need the code. And so the FBI recovers this code. They provide it to the NSA, the National Security Agency. NSA is, you know, one of one of the most important aspects or organizations within the intelligence community. And they're the spy code breakers. Um, they operate, you know, around the world. They gain access to these codes, and they had recorded the numbers stations broadcasts over shortwave radio. They held on and they kept them on the shelf. They were meaningless until they got the codes. And again, there's a direct line between Lucy and Ana Montez on this, which is amazing. So the NSA listens back to older messages and they keep coming up on someone named Agent S. And Agent S, they don't know who it is, 70% of the time, Agent S is he, 30% she. They don't know where Agent S works, what this person's name is, what the gender is, but they do know, this is the NSA now, that Agent S is a high-ranking member of the U.S. intelligence community, and they know that through context. It's clear that Agent S um, has access to information about Cuban defectors. That's very closely held information, uh, typically. And they, they learn other very specific clues, including Agent S visited Guantanamo Bay, the U.S. military base in Cuba, within a certain week period, one year. And that's obviously a very specific clue. You know, there are only a certain number of people who are visiting that base at that period of time. So the NSA picks up on these clues, puts them together, analyzes them as best they can. And they have a big meeting with the FBI in likely 1998. Okay, And uh, keep in mind, Anna's not arrested until right after 9-11, uh, three years later. So approximately either late 97 or, or 98, the NSA has a meeting with the FBI. Sorry for all the Washington acronyms here. But they have these clues and they pass them along to, uh, you know, our nation's top uh, law enforcement agency. It's supposed to look into spy matters. And there's a woman there, Cuban-American, it turns out, who I call Elena in the book. She's an analyst. And it is important that she's Cuban-American because she and her family are forced out of Cuba when she's uh, just a girl. And she... She's carried that torch for a long time. She can't stand the Castro regime. And now she works for NSA. She passes these clues along to the FBI. And the FBI investigator, uh, um, his name is Steve McCoy, starts to work on the clues. Now, in fairness to McCoy, this is a tough case. Even though you have the clues, you can't just blab it to anyone. You have to be very careful about who within the government you share this information with so that the spy doesn't learn about it. 
he's very plotting and deliberate. And ultimately, he, on his own, he really is not getting anywhere. Elena learns this. She learns this information um, from talking to the FBI. They've not gotten anywhere. And at one point, she calls her FBI contact and says, what is going on with this case? I gave you these great clues and I've not heard anything. And someone at the FBI, according to Elena, tells her this case is closed um, and with no explanation. That actually was not true, but that's what she was told. She is beside herself. As an American and a Cuban-American, she wants this spy caught. And it's very unusual to have such specific clues to identify a potential spy. So out of uh, sheer frustration, Elena, she reaches out to investigators at the DIA. Now, this is in 2000. Now, at that time, she didn't know that Ana Montes was there. She didn't know that the spy worked at DIA. That part is coincidental. She just knew that DIA had investigators who were good at, at Cuba uh, matters. So she reaches out to them and she sets up a meeting at DIA. And uh, there's a, a then DIA intelligence officer named uh, Chris Simmons, who is tasked to meet with the NSA team at DIA headquarters. Chris thought it was a, a meet and greet. Like, I'm going to show him around the building and we're going to get to know each other a little bit. That lasts for seconds. And then Elena says to Chris, uh, yeah, this is not a meet and greet. I need a skiff. I need a secure room where I can meet you. I need to brief you about something. Chris sets it up. They sit down and Elena pulls out an envelope. And in it, she has some of these clues. She drops them on the desk. Chris takes a look at it and he can't believe it. Uh, and Elena says, this is an open investigation by the FBI, and I need, I need help. I need help with this. Chris informs his boss, and it bubbles up to Scott Carmichael, who I said had already interviewed Ana Montes uh, a, a couple years before. Scott gets a hold of these clues and tries to develop more, starts contacting Elena on the side and on the sly um, without the knowledge of the FBI. And within literally minutes, Scott has pulled together uh, facts about the case, entered it into the DIA database, and up pops Ana Montez's name, among other suspects. And he immediately remembers her and he thinks, oh my God, maybe she is the spy. He takes some of these other facts. He's trying to corroborate it. He gets in touch with Elena, again, all without the knowledge or approval of the FBI. And he tries to weasel more information out of Elena, which he does. He now believes uh, strongly that Ana Montes is the spy. It's a very circumstantial case, but because some of the clues are so specific, including when Agent S, the uh, unidentified subject, was in Guantanamo Bay, he believes it has to be Ana Montes. Scott Carmichael approaches the FBI and, and FBI Special Agent Steve McCoy. McCoy, at first, doesn't believe it. He's skeptical. 
and basically sends Scott packing. There's some disagreement about exactly what happened and, and how resistant the FBI was. But I'll tell you from Scott's perspective, Scott feels that he was completely discounted and sent away uh, feeling a fool. And he determined, he got angry and was determined to change the mind of the FBI. And over the next couple of weeks, again, in, in 2000, he's faxing, he's showing up unannounced at the FBI. He's doing everything he can to convince Agent McCoy that his information is correct. In late 2000, ultimately, the FBI agrees. They think they have enough to open a full field investigation, and they do. So in approximately November of 2000, the FBI finally concedes. They think Anamantes is likely a spy, and they open a full formal investigation of her. How do they build that case? Because they've only got circumstantial evidence at the moment. The, uh, the FBI, I mean, they're fantastic, uh, a fantastic law enforcement agency once they get involved. And in this case, they were impressive. They put a lot of people on it. They, they worked the case hard. Uh, one of the things that they uh, figured out was that Anamantes, they knew from the clues that Agent S had bought a very specific kind of Toshiba laptop. They uh, were able to figure out that Anamantes bought that same model. That was very helpful. And then in May of 2001, they've now been investigating for about six months. They got special court authority to enter Anna's apartment and do a search. Uh, it's you know called a black bag job. This is you know without her knowledge, obviously. And they break in, and they find her shortwave radio, and they also find the Toshiba laptop. And they copy the hard drive while they're there, like the one agent described it as sneaking in like ninjas. They copy the hard drive uh, and they leave without messing up the dust in the in the room or anything else. And a couple days later, the uh, the laptop contents are uh, translated, and sure enough, there are communications, direct communications between Anna and her Cuban handlers. And it's obvious that Anna has turned over the true identities of Americans in, in Cuba. At one point, the Cubans say, thank you for revealing name redacted uh, here, but presumably a CIA operative, uh, quote, we were waiting for him with open arms, uh, a chilling phrase. Mm. Um, and there's other very specific information it made it clear in May of 2001 no doubt that Anna was a Cuban operative. Now we're we're moving closer to nine eleven, and uh, mm -hmm. you know prior to this, the the FBI just want to make sure they want to gather as much evidence and try and find out you know who's contacting her and you know whether she's part of a wider network. But nine eleven brings a a quicker impetus to her arrest. Yes. Uh, the FBI wanted to catch her, you know, red handed. Um, and so they followed her. Uh, they searched her computer. They were keeping an eye on her at work, at home, in her car. But they never saw her meet with uh, a Cuban. And now uh, keep in mind, this whole time, 
she stays in place at DIA. Uh, I interviewed the director of DIA, Admiral Thomas Wilson, the director at the time. And he said that he, you know, he knew that she was an, at that this point an, a suspected Cuban spy. Nothing had been officially filed against her. And he kept her at work um, in the service of trying to find what she was up to or find her contacts and catch her in the act, which was, you know, remarkable. It started, as I said, in, in, in late 2000, and then she's not arrested until after 9-11. When 9-11 hits, the DIA uh, changes radically. Uh, first of all, the Pentagon itself is hit, and DIA employees within the Pentagon are killed by, by the plane, by the impact of the plane. So this is extremely personal. Uh, and that was actually the largest loss of life uh, for the DIA in its in its history of of its employees. Um, secondly, the DIA is now the agency in charge of war planning and helping the larger Pentagon decide where to where and how to invade Afghanistan following the 9/11 attacks. So Admiral Wilson is one very busy uh, person at this time. He's trying to comfort the uh, the families and the the employees who were so affected um, by the terrorism, and he's first up for helping to plan uh, the coming war in Afghanistan. He realizes that uh, he's still got a uh, an accused Cuban spy on his workforce, but worse than that, well-meaning but uh, ignorant folks within DIA have now promoted Anna again and put her on a task force that is about to assess bombing targets in Afghanistan. Wow. And when I say ignorant, I, I only mean that yeah, they, just they didn't know. Yeah, yeah they, they were not read into this because it was closely held. So the, the admiral um, gets this piece of paper post 9-11 that says that Ana Montes is about to get Afghanistan bombing targets. And he said, well, you know, this has been fun, but this is over now. And he instructs the FBI that she has to be arrested or fired um, on September 21st, 2001. Uh, and ultimately, that is what happened. That is her arrest day. And she's she's taken out of the building in handcuffs that day. One thing I did find incredible in the book is the 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 part where Robert Hansen, before he's unmasked as a Soviet spy, is actually briefed on the case. This absolutely stunned me, and I only learned this as part of the reporting for the book. At the time, uh, again, this is late 2000. Um, so Anna is now under investigation by the FBI. At the time, Robert Hansen, who's a, tra a traitor and was a, a Russian spy. But at the time, he was with the FBI and he was based at the U.S. State Department. He was the FBI's liaison at the State Department. The FBI had a policy that when there was a foreign counterintelligence investigation, they would often notify their contact at the State Department for coordination purposes. Unfortunately, at that time, 
the liaison was Robert Hansen. Now, he was not under FBI investigation, but he had been a Russian spy for a very long time and had turned over all kinds of classified information and um, and also the identities of Russians who were working on behalf of the U.S. government, and some of them were executed. He was a very dangerous person. An FBI official who I interviewed told me that he inadvertently briefed Robert Hansen on the Anamantes case. Just a couple months later, the FBI both figured out that Hansen was a Russian spy and they arrested him. So the FBI official who had briefed him on the Montez case was so worried for months and months that Hansen would have shared this information about an open investigation of an American working for Cuba with the Russians. If that had happened, it would have blown up the whole case. So he was worried until September 21st, 2001, when Anna ultimately was arrested. Incredible, incredible links across various different spies there. And what was Anna's immediate reaction to arrest? The FBI, uh, two FBI agents worked on the case, had a whole, almost a play worked out, a skit uh, to try to get her to talk. And they were unsuccessful. Uh, among other things, they did they raised that they knew that her uh, siblings worked for the FBI. They were just trying to do anything they could to get her talking. They the DIA had pre-positioned a nurse, an oxygen tank, and CPR equipment. They assumed that Anna would be so upset upon hearing that she was being arrested for espionage that she might collapse. Anna immediately asked for a lawyer. She didn't need any help. She got up and walked out and uh, with her shoulders held high. Um, she was kind of cool as a cucumber, at least during these early uh, stages, and didn't give the FBI anything. She's unusual as well that she's an ideological spy. She doesn't earn any money out of this she charges for a few or she gets some money for a few expenses but most of the american citizens that spied for the soviet union during the cold war were doing it for money particularly ames and hansen yeah she's uh, she's unusual for for two reasons one as you said ian she's a political politically motivated spy uh she was opposed to Reagan's policies in Central America. She saw it as bullying over, you know, a century. Um, so, and and she admired the revolution in Cuba and the Castro regime, uh, their goals at least. And secondly, she's unusual because she's a woman. Um, I saw a government report that the the percentage of women versus men who've been spies in the U.S., it's very low for women. It's only about 9 or 10% in the modern era. So she's unusual for both reasons. Yeah, she, she took very little money. She got um, reimbursed for her car so she could drive to and from uh, DIA. Her laptop and also uh, the Cubans paid off some debt that she had for her graduate school uh, training. But beyond that, she refused any any other funds. 
I mean, in her role at the DIA, was she on a decent salary? I imagine she was as she rose up the ranks. She was, yeah, and and she uh, when she ended, she was a it's called called a, a GS fourteen or I believe a GG fourteen in uh, DIA vernacular. But um, yeah, she made it. She made a nice salary, not you know a nice salary for for Washington. I mean, it's not you know she was not a millionaire, but yeah. uh, she was comfortable, and she was not married, and she never had children. So, how does the prosecution go here? Because there's there's not a court case per se, is there? There's there's an agreement on uh, what the sentence is going to be. Yeah, Anna was essentially convicted once the FBI broke into her apartment and read her laptop. That was really incriminating evidence against her. After the arrest, when they searched her apartment and her purse, they found additional corroborating. Uh, information. They found her crypto codes. They found her pager codes um, by which she was um, reaching out by pager to the Cubans in New York. And the codes said, I'm in trouble. I'm having comms, communications problem, that sort of thing. So they had a very strong circumstantial case against her, but they had never seen her taking a document out or meeting a Cuban. The prosecution decided that if she cooperated, they wouldn't have to take the case to trial. And they negotiated a deal with Anna's lawyers for 25 years in prison. She ultimately served 21 years and three months. And as you know, she was just very recently uh, released from prison and now is living essentially free in Puerto Rico. Did she give any explanation in those interviews as to her motivation? Did she apologize or was she completely unrepentant about what she'd done? The latter. <laughs> she is She is and was totally unrepentant. Uh, she agreed to, to cooperate with the government. She was debriefed for months by the FBI, the DIA, the CIA, every uh, agency you can think of got a crack at her and she had to cooperate or the 25 year deal would be uh, blown up. Um, she did. She did cooperate. The government was satisfied with her cooperation at sentencing. She was absolutely unapologetic. In fact, she talked about her worldview, her uh, one. It's basically like a one world nation uh, kind of worldview where she didn't really believe in borders and talked about how the U.S. had bullied other nations and how she felt it was unfair and that she was in a unique position to help poor Cuba from the attacks from the U.S. and the embargo. So at her sentencing, her, even her family was alarmed that she was so unapologetic. They were afraid that the judge would reject the sentencing term and give her a harsher sentence, uh, but he didn't. And she ended up with a 25-year uh, sentence. And I'll say that many people have looked at this are surprised. You know, it's it's she's a traitor, and it was eligible for the death penalty. And if you look at um, Robert Hansen and Rick Ames and others, they are serving life sentences um, for for their crimes. And Anna got 25 years, did 21. She's out now. She's 65 years old. She's a free woman. 
I mean, the fact that she wasn't caught in the act, was that part of the reason why there was the negotiation over the sentence? Because they thought that somehow if they took this to court, this might fall apart somewhat? Yeah, I think they were worried about that. They're, they also, the Justice Department never wants to take any of these national security cases to trial. It just opens up way too much sensitive information. So they, it's in their best interest uh, to s- secure a plea. Who was the lawyer? That sounds like a really good deal that, that she got. He was a fantastic, colorful lawyer named Plato Kacharis, who had represented Robert Hansen, Rick Ames, Monica Lewinsky, and, uh, and many other notable defendants in, in Washington. Uh, very, very colorful guy and very skilled at this kind of work and, and you know, clearly got her a favorable deal. We've only scratched the surface of what's in the book. There's loads more detail in uh, Jim's book. It's called Codename Blue Wren, the true story of America's most dangerous female spy and the sister she betrayed. There's a load more in there about the family dynamic, which is a particularly interesting um, part of the story. But you've uh, hopefully been tantalized there and will be rushing out to buy the book. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.